Good morning, everyone. The longer a person walks with God, the more we find out the Lord works in ways we just don't expect. We think we're going in a certain direction and going to do a specific task, and all of a sudden, the path turns sharply. And we find the Lord calling us to do things we were least expecting and often seem impossible. We must remember something when the journey becomes twisted and difficult. We must not lean on our own understanding. Instead, we must cling to the objective word of God. We must stay with whatever God says. If the Lord tells us to do something in His word... We must do it and trust Him. We must not trust in our own hearts. We must not trust in our emotions. We must not trust in our feelings because they can be tainted by sin. We must not worry about what others think. We must courageously plow ahead and honor the Lord. This is only possible if our greatest delight is the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, knowing God is sovereign only impacts us if in the trials we want to glorify Jesus Christ no matter what. If He is our first love, then knowing God is sovereign is a glorious thing. But if we know that God is sovereign and we don't have Him as our first love, we may become fatalist when things happen and not really take responsible of honoring and glorifying God. We can be thankful, brothers and sisters. God's canon is closed. We have all that we need for life and godliness through the knowledge of Him, as Second Peter 1.3 states. Our circumstances, though challenging, are not as perplexing as many of the believers of the early church went through. Being chased around the world in order to be murdered or martyred. That's what many of the early Christians went through. They were used as torches for Nero's parties, doused with oil and burned alive. This isn't what we face. But yet, when we look back over early church history, and as we look through the book of Acts, one thing becomes consistent. These people loved Christ. And their love for Christ revealed itself with the dependence and faith and trust and obedience, even in very difficult circumstances. And as we are seeing in Acts, much of what the Jewish believers had originally thought is going to be radically changed and challenged. Today we're going to see the Apostle Peter whose world is turned upside down. In a matter of four days, much of what he had been taught his whole entire life and what he thought was going to be challenged. That's what we see in our passage today. It was during this time God was giving new revelation of himself as the new covenant began to reveal its fruit. But notice, at the end of the day, Peter did what he was required to do by the Lord. And in the process, he became an instrument of grace to a whole new people group. 
Beloved, we must understand the twists and turns of our lives are ultimately all about exalting Christ. That's what believers' lives are about. We might not see it at first, but God does not make mistakes. Thankfully, He is extremely patient with sinners like me and you. He gently works with us as we are turned from our own wrong thinking to embrace the glorious gospel and the glorious plan of God. God was opening up the gospel to the world. And this meant some people were going to have to have major changes in their thinking. By the way, every one of us has these kind of major changes in our thinking regularly, don't we? Have you ever found yourself walking along and thinking, okay, I think I got a handle on the way the world's going, and then all of a sudden, blindside. Wow, wasn't expecting that one. What do we do? We turn to the gospel. We turn to who he is and what he's done. We don't trust in ourselves. We don't trust in people. We don't trust in our emotions. We don't trust in our feelings. We trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. (laughs) Because he is master and he has bought us and he is good. Now, is it always easy to understand and embrace what the word says? No. But the way is clear as long as we follow the path revealed by the Lord in his word. It may be wrong and even painful at times, but God's ways are always, always the best way. Always, even when you don't feel it. Now, we started to see last week, God has opened up the way to himself for every tribe, tongue, and nation. For everyone who repents and believes in Jesus, there is salvation in Christ. Over these weeks, we are going to cover the concept of unity with people without partiality, all in Christ. The section can be outlined as follows. The Gentile seeks the one true God. The gospel saves the Gentiles. And the grace shocks the gifted. Last week we began, the Gentiles seek the God, the one true God. And we're going to continue that today and see how far we get into second point. So I am breaking all of the rules again, but you just, I'm sorry, this is just the way it is. But hopefully you will understand the passage better as we go along. Today, again, we are going to continue to see that the Lord is sovereignly working in a Gentile seeker to reveal the destruction of of the barrier wall through the gospel. We saw last week that the Gentile seeker is broken down into two main sections, the Gentile seeker and the instrument of grace, or the apostle. We saw the Gentile seeker was this guy named Cornelius. He was found in verses 1 and 2. We saw that Cornelius was from Caesarea, where Philip the evangelist had last been mentioned. We saw that Cornelius was a centurion who was in charge of upwards of a hundred Roman troops. We saw Cornelius was a religious man who feared God but was not yet born again and converted. Now, I talked about this a little bit and somebody came up to me afterwards after the service and asked a question. Well, what about that passage that says that God does not answer the prayers of the unbeliever? 
well, why can, how do you reconcile, well, he answered this guy's prayer, but he was an unbeliever. That's a good question. And ultimately, I would say that that passage you're referring to, or they were referring to, was talking about a lost person that God was not drawing to himself. Whereas in this passage, God is drawing him, and God is beginning to work, and so therefore he does answer a prayer that God is graciously working in the person's life to give. And I believe that even an unbeliever can call out to God to do something if God is working in the unbeliever to call out to that person, which is what's happening with this guy, Cornelius. And again, don't take it up with me. Take it up with all the other commentaries that agree. (laughs) I mean, it's not, this isn't a confusing thing. Most people say that 11.14 is very clear that Peter was referring to this guy, being not saved until until Peter shows up. So it appears that Cornelius, to a degree, was seeking God. How was he seeking God if he was an unbeliever? He didn't have a regenerate heart. The answer is God. God was drawing even the unbeliever. And that happens, ladies and gentlemen. I believe the Spirit of God and I believe the grace of God works in people even before they're regenerate. He draws them, and that's what he's in the process of doing with Cornelius. We see it in this passage, don't we? He's working all the way through the process. He's bringing people and orchestrating events and giving special revelation. Listen, and not that I go with experience, but even my own walk with the Lord, my own conversion. I remember hearing the gospel, and along the way, seeds were planted. And I knew there was an element of what they were saying was true. I didn't want to submit to it, but I knew it was true. And I remember the six weeks of being pummeled by the gospel before I became a believer. It was painful. Well, was God doing something then? If I was a totally dead lost sinner, I should have just walked out of there saying nothing, right? It shouldn't have affected me. But the Spirit of God was doing His work. And that's what He's doing with Cornelius here. How long does his, is the process of drawing a person to Christ? I have no idea. The Bible doesn't give us a specific amount of time. It could be years. It could be weeks. So God's grace works even in unbelievers. Okay? Not again. Does that mean that people are not dead in their sins? No, it means they're dead in their sins. But grace can work beforehand. We concluded that God's grace could work in the lost in beginning the process of drawing them. Cornelius was a Gentile seeker who had not yet fully embraced the gospel. Then we saw the revelation. And again, we saw the Lord used a vision of an angel to encourage him to send for Peter. Again, not yet saved, but yet an angel appears to this one. It's interesting that in the vision, the angel does not just tell him the gospel. Isn't that interesting? Why didn't the angel just say, hey, I got some good news. Jesus has come. He's died. He rose from the dead. Why did he send for Peter? It's a great question. And I think the reason is, is because God loves to use the gospel through the proclamation of people to bring people to salvation. And so God does it this way. Has angel tell him to send for Peter so that what? Romans 10 gets shown. How can they hear without a preacher? So what happens? It just lays it out perfectly, doesn't it? 
Why does God use preachers? Why does He use evangelists? Why not just angels? The answer? Because that's how God does it. <laughs> Ultimately, God does it so that He gets glory by using sinners like me. Can you believe it? To proclaim the glory of the gospel. That's good news, isn't it? He could have done the angel, but he chose not to. He chose to use Peter. And in the process, you know what he did when he used Peter? He not only exalted himself, he also changed Peter too in the process. You're going to see. Isn't that glorious? One of the things that I just absolutely love about God and His sovereignty is, is that He can be working through all kinds of people at the same time to accomplish His will. He uses us and we're messing up and somebody falls down and another person's helping that person and God's teaching through that person and that person. Sometimes we often think that the world just revolves around us and the sovereignty of God is only for us. But the reality, it doesn't work that way, does it? God works in every single one of us at the same time. Do you understand? That's glorious, isn't it? He's got something He's doing in your life. Everybody in this room, just like He is with me right now. And all of these things are working perfectly at the same time in God's ways. What a God, right? All for His glory. So then we saw the pursuit. And again, this guy pursues God, but yet not regenerate yet. But he calls for them to sin. When the angel who was speaking to him had left... He summoned two of his servants and a devout soldier of those who were his personal attendants. And after he had explained everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. Why? To get Peter. So we've seen the seeker's heart that has been prepared by the Lord's grace. Next, we see the Lord's instrument of grace is called to action. That would be Peter. And again, this is the whole unfolding of God's work in this man's life. Notice this section breaks down into four sections. The sovereign setting, the vexing vision, the divine directive, and the outrageous obedience. How do you like that? Isn't that nice? That doesn't happen very often. I'm just not good at alliteration. But God is good, right? Sovereign setting, let's start with that. Again, that was... That sounded almost prideful. Please forgive me. The Lord is good. The sovereign setting. In verse 9 it says, On the next day as they were on their way and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. But he became hungry and was desiring to eat. But while they were making preparation, he fell into a trance. This setting is so interesting. So typical of our own lives too. The Lord has something astonishing on the horizon for Peter. And yet, he was clueless. In fact, the Lord works within even the smallest of circumstances to accomplish his will. Here we see the apostle Peter on the rooftop around noon. That's the sixth hour, praying. And God has a group of men on their way to see him. They've already left. They're on the path. God in his plan has them coming. And Peter's up on the rooftop and he's praying. And he's hungry. (laughs) 
It's very interesting that God is already getting Peter ready and somehow working through his own desire for food to start to begin the message to him. It's so interesting how God does not have violence against our will, does not take violence against our will is is the way the Westminster Confession says it. In other words, God does not come in and make us do what he wants us to do without us wanting to do it in our will. There's no violence against our will, which is very interesting, though. You have Peter here, and he's hungry. And God, in his amazing way, takes a hunger to then turn it and show him a glorious truth to get him going in the right direction. So he doesn't, he doesn't say, okay... And and in this, he's not going inside Peter's heart and saying, okay, I'm going to make you hungry now. Do you understand? He's working without having violence on the will to have him start the process of turning and learning. Every little event. It's the same way with us. Do you understand that God knows exactly what you're thinking at all times? Do you understand that he understands your will and he knows what you're thinking and how you're going and what your direction is? Every time you have a hunger pain, he knows exactly that you have a hunger pain. He knows every thought. We were marveling this week at Isaiah 53 in, uh, uh, at Grace on Campus. One of the verses talks about why Jesus was buried with a rich man. It says, because he was innocent it says he was assigned a place with the wicked but he was had a grave with the rich man and it gives the reason because he had done no innocence you know now what that's describing that's describing 700 years later what joseph of arimathea's motives would be concerning jesus why did joseph give him his grave because he knew jesus was innocent So 700 years before, God looked down, knew exactly what was going to happen, ordained it, and knew that his own emotions, his own feelings, his own will would say, Jesus should be buried in my grave, not in a hole like all the others that were crucified. This is amazing. Do you understand before the world began, he knew exactly every hunger thought you'd ever have. He knew every thought and every action you'd ever do. This may, And he is orchestrating all of this at the same time. Is God bigger than we can comprehend? He's so much bigger than we can comprehend. Do you understand? We are blindsided by events, but God's never blindsided. Praise God. I was blindsided again this week with stuff. But it doesn't matter because our God is sovereign. (laughs) And I trust him anyway. And I trust him because I know he bought me. (laughs) Because he loves me. Oh, what a God. Hungry Peter? God then says, I have something for you to eat. (laughs) You're hungry, Peter? I have something for you to eat. How about these unclean animals? (laughs) How about some unclean animals? Just to rise and kill and eat. (laughs) 
<laughs> the events are all unfolding because God is ready to show His divine plan to save a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. You're hungry, Peter. I'm going to turn your hunger pain into an opportunity to show you the gospels for all people. Can you orchestrate those kind of thoughts? <laughs> I mean, that's called the ultimate, right? Some would say that's the ultimate manipulator. No, it's not. It's for our good and his glory. But he takes even our hunger pains, even Peter's hunger pain, and turns it for his glory so that he can show off that everybody needs Christ and that the new covenant is for all people. Friends, we must understand that we don't always see the direction God is taking us. We don't always understand why he's doing what he is doing. And often, initially, it looks like he's taking us in the direction that seems so contrary to the way we think. But God is still in control and still working. He's still Lord. Notice Peter is in Joppa on the roof waiting for dinner. Next, the Lord gives him this vexing vision. In verse 11, it says, And he saw the sky opened up and an object like a great sheep coming down, lowered by the four corners to the ground. And there were in it all kinds of four-footed animals and crawling creatures of the earth and birds of the air. And a voice came to him, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything unholy and unclean. Again, a voice came to him a second time. What God has cleansed, no longer consider unholy. This happened three times, and immediately the object was taken up into the sky. Now Peter was greatly perplexed in mind as, he, as to what this vision, which he had, might have seen. Notice this vexing vision from the Lord is to Peter. Peter has a vision of a large sheet containing unclean animals in verses 11 and 12. This was totally opposite of how Peter thought. He could not com comprehend the command. After all, turn in your Bibles, Leviticus chapter 20. Leviticus chapter 20. In Leviticus chapter 20, God had given his laws, and he's told them what they should eat and what they shouldn't eat, and he's told them why they shouldn't eat what they are supposed to not eat. Don't eat those unclean animals. He says in Leviticus 20, verse 24 to 26, Hence I have said to you, You are to possess their land, and I myself will give it to you to possess it. A land flowing with milk and honey. I am Yahweh your God, who has separated you from the peoples. You are therefore to make a distinction between the clean animal and the unclean animal between the unclean bird and the clean. And you shall not make yourselves detestable by animal and by bird or by anything that creeps on the ground, which I have separated for you as unclean. Thus, you are to be holy to me, for I, Yahweh, am holy, and I have set you apart from the peoples to be mine. So when Peter sees this vision, what goes through his head? No way! I'm not doing this. You've set me apart to be a holy people. I'm not supposed to touch anything like this. 
Yet Peter is ordered to kill and eat. Look at verse 13 back in chapter 10. A voice came to him, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. Not only eat it, but you got to kill it too. The unclean creatures. Do you understand how crazy this would be to a Jewish guy? You want me to not only eat it, but i got to kill it, which means all its blood's going to get all over me too. Do you understand how contrary to a Jewish way of thinking this is? Get unclean animal blood on you. Be un- ceremonially unclean. Contaminate yourself with these animals. And Peter says, there is no way I would do that. Look at his response. In verse 14 it says, But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything unholy and unclean. You wonder at this point whether or not Peter was thinking something along the lines of, Oh, this is a test. I'm hungry, and God's telling me to eat something that I'm not supposed to eat. So that must mean that God really just wants me to say, No way, I'm not going to eat this. To show my faithfulness to Leviticus, the law. Right? Instead, God says, nah. He gives a voice in verse 15. Again, a voice came to him a second time. What God has cleansed no longer consider unholy. That means, hey, what you consider unholy has now been what? Declared clean. Arise and eat some pig. Let's go to barbecue. (laughs) Why? Because God has declared it clean. It's clean. Peter has shown us the same vision three times. You don't get it, Peter? Let me do it again. This happened three times, and immediately the object was taken up into the sky. You know, I do find it interesting that Three times, it seems to keep popping up in Peter's life, doesn't it? I mean, he denied the Lord three times. And then after his restoration, Jesus says, do you love me three times? And now he's telling him, get up, kill and eat three times. I think things have changed, huh? And it's very interesting to me that he needs to be told three times. I think, to a degree, Peter was trying to be faithful to the Lord, but he just misunderstood the new covenant. He could not get it around his mind. And by the way, that struggle continues on to this day. All too often we have people trying to keep the Mosaic law in order to be faithful to the Lord. I think we have to be very, very careful, ladies and gentlemen. Does that mean that we do whatever we want to do? No, we have the law of Christ that we submit to him. And in the glory of Christ, knowing the gospel of Christ, what are we all about? Laying down our life for Christ because he laid down our life for us. By the way, isn't that the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, which is what? Be sacrificially committed to the God, the one true God, with all that you are. 
That's what Christ did. And that's who we are. Now, Peter is greatly perplexed, though. Look at verse 17 there. It says, Now, while Peter was greatly perplexed in mind as to what the vision which he had seen might be, he's saying, what in the world? This just doesn't make sense. Why? Why did God change the law of Moses? Because the law of Moses kills, ladies and gentlemen. That's why. Why? Is it no longer the law of Moses? Because it did not save. It just condemned both Israel and the whole world. No one could keep the law of Moses perfectly. No one kept it with right motives perfectly. The set-apart people of Israel could save no one until the Holy One of Israel showed up. Then Jesus became the fulfillment of the law in order to provide a way for his people to be saved. Again, let's look back at the law. Take your Bibles, look over to Deuteronomy. It's not just the ceremonial law that has been fulfilled, by the way. If you say, well, it's just the ceremonial part of the law that we're going to, that's not fulfilled, then you, you start to fall into things, okay, so what do we do with the moral law? Should we keep the moral law of God? Everybody in the room says, Amen, right? Be careful. Be careful. Let's look at Deuteronomy 21. Deuteronomy 21. If any man has a stubborn or rebellious son who will not obey his father or mother, and when they chastise him, he will not even listen to them, then his father and mother shall seize him, and bring him out to the elders of his city at the gateway of his hometown. They shall say to the elders of his city, This son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey us. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of his city shall stone him to death. So you shall remove the evil from your midst, and all Israel will hear of it and fear. Hmm. I wonder. So, how many of you rebellious teenagers are ready to get stoned? I'm afraid that if we stoned every rebellious glutton drunkard in the room up to the age of 22 or 23, I'm fairly sure we would stone probably half of the room. Wouldn't we? How many of you are willing to admit I was a rebellious glutton drunkard? I was close. <laughs> Fact of the matter is that's moral too. It's very moral. Exodus twenty one seventeen states He who curses his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. Whoa. Okay, now what's that mean? Kids, that does not mean saying a cuss word to your parents. That means calling for evil to come upon your parents. Calling for evil to come upon your parents. Desiring something bad to happen to your parents. All children in the room, have you ever desired for something bad to happen to your parents? Every human in the room has probably done that. Haven't we, if we're really honest? 
There have been moments in our life. What's the phrase go? If looks could kill. Well, ladies and gentlemen, if looks could kill, I'd be a dead man. From four kids. (laughs) And my parents would be dead too. So every one of us should be put to death. Beloved, the law of Moses kills. We all deserve death, don't we? But you know something that's amazing? It's glorious too. Look at Deuteronomy 21. Right after that passage about going and stoning the drunkard, the rebellious son. The next passage talks about something. If any man has a stubborn or rebellious son who will not obey his father, it's after this one, right? Look, watch, 21. Then all the men of the city shall stone him to death so that you shall remove the evil from your midst and all Israel will hear of it and fear. Look, if a man has committed a sin worthy of death, he is put to death and you hang him on a tree. His corpse shall not hang all night on the tree, but you shall surely bury him on the same day. For he who is hanged is cursed of God, so that you do not revile your land which your Lord, your God, gives you as an inheritance. You say, well, what in the world does that mean? That means make him a public spectacle. Let him be the one that's a curse so that everybody gets it. Did they practice this? Not very often. Very, very rarely. Because Israel knew down deep in their heart they were what? All deserving death. When they were really honest, right? But someone came. Someone came and was accursed and hung on a tree. That's, this is talked about and fulfilled in Scripture that Jesus was the man who was hung on a tree and took the curse. And it talks about this in the New Testament. Oh, beloved, where does holiness come? It comes from Christ. It comes from the one who was hung on a tree and took our curse. It's the one that died in our place. See, as you understand that we can't keep the law, that we are guilty, then we come to know that our only hope is in who? The Christ, the Lord Jesus, the one who was cursed for us. He took our evil. He took our punishment. He took the Father's wrath. And if you know this, and if you trust in this, and if you enjoy this, and if you would delight in this Lord, guess what? Your desire is to obey Him. And you will become holy, for you will long to kill any sin in your heart and in your life. No, oh, this is good news, isn't it? Our country will only become holy 
if they repent and believe in the Holy One who hung on a tree. We are not going to clean up this country. Do you understand that? We're not going to do it. Oh, how many times have we screamed from the rooftops, please stop, don't go down this road, country, stop! They need a Savior. Our country needs a Savior. Do you understand that? They need to understand the cross. And listen, if believers within the church stumble and bumble and find themselves falling away, I truly believe they have not understood the glory of the cross and the gospel. Why do people fall into outright sin and fall away from the faith? One reason. They don't know Christ. They don't know the glory of Him and what He's done for us. It is the gospel that purifies our life. It is Christ and Him crucified that makes us long to live for Him. Oh, folks, this is what drove Peter to keep going. This is why Peter, even though he didn't understand it, though he was perplexed, what did he do? He obeyed. Even when things didn't make sense, why did he keep doing it? Find it interesting. Because of the three times, remember? Oh, yeah, I denied you and you died in my place. But notice God in his kindness gives a divine directive to Peter. He says, now while Peter was greatly perplexed in mind as to what the vision which he had seen might be, behold, the men who had been sent by Cornelius having asked direction from Simon's from for Simon's house, appeared at the gate. And calling out, they were asking whether Simon, who was also called Peter, was staying there. While Peter was reflecting on the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you, but get up, go downstairs, and accompany them without misgivings, for I have sent them myself. Oh, this is neat, isn't it? God's providence. As the men arrive... While Peter is perplexed, the Spirit directs Peter to go with the men. Arise, go with these men without misgivings. This is very, very interesting. Why? Because what happens is is that even when our hearts don't want to go in a direction, God continues to woo us and point us and direct us and say, Look, go straight. Follow me. Follow me. I'm the one. Do what I say. And in this case, he gives providential, uh, providential kisses, for lack of a better term, or providential grace. Have you ever been walking and doing something that you knew was wrong, and all of a sudden you get a text from somebody, or something happens in your life, somebody picks up their phone, and they call you, and you're struggling with something, and immediately you get that phone call, and you go, What was that? Hi, how are you? <laughs> uh, direction on God. Attention on Him. Uh, this is one of the reasons why I just absolutely love being a pastor. 
I love a peanut pastor. Y'all just have a way of bringing, bringing your problems to me exactly at the moment I need to counsel my own heart in some of these issues. It's beautiful. <laughs> it's God's providence. It's God's goodness. And God has these guys arrive just in time to what? Say, Peter, come on, just get the vision. You understand what he was doing? He's trying to show you something. You got three Gentiles showing up at his doorstep. I'm here. What are you at my house for? I'm a Jew. Leave me alone. No, he couldn't say that. Why? Because he had had the vision. Go down. Take him in without misgivings. Oh, you're here. <laughs> Gentiles are here at my house. God's doing something. I guess I better go with what he says. What do you think? What a great God we serve, huh? He does this too. I believe this is not, this is uh, normative. <laughs> he does this in his body. He works in his body this way. Oh, how many times I've gotten cards from you guys, and I'm not begging for cards. Please get that. I'm not. But I get a card or something from you just saying something nice, and you say it, and you go, just encourage my heart, and I'm like, wow, God, dang, I needed that one. This is the right moment. God is good, isn't he? He knows what he's doing. He's working it perfectly, isn't he? Notice Peter went down, following the divine directive, and went down to the men and said, Behold, I'm the one you're looking for. What is the reason for which you have come? In other words, look, I know I'm supposed to go down here and get to know these people. I'm still not quite understanding this vision. I'm still not getting it all. Why are you here? And they say, Cornelius, a centurion, a righteous and God-fearing man, well spoken of by the entire nation of Jews. Uh-oh, that means he's a Gentile. Was divinely directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and hear a message from you. Oh, what good this is. What beauty this is. The men explained Cornelius to Cornelius why he needs to obey the divine directive. And then notice what Peter's response is to this. Ladies and gentlemen, this is something that we all need to get. This is called outrageous obedience. It's obedience when things seem to be totally opposite of the way we want to go. Oh, get this, please. What was his feelings and his emotions at the moment? that these Gentiles were at his house. What do you think he was thinking? I guarantee you he walked out of that house the next morning shaking his head. What am I doing? Oy vey, oy vey, oy vey. I'm a Jew. I'm going with three Gentiles to a Jew's house. And not only a Jew's house, but a Roman soldier's house. This has got to be crazy. There's something wrong. Don't go with your feelings. Go with God's divine directive. Do what he says, even when your heart says don't do it. Otherwise, you will die. 
do it, and you will see the glory of God revealed. Outrageous obedience. That's what we need. Don't we? Anybody in here need outrageous obedience? Me. I want to be outrageously obedient to God. Peter invited these Gentiles in. Boy, isn't this? This is outrageous, isn't it? He invited them into his house and gave them lodging. Wow. This is just so... We can't comprehend just how crazy this is. For a Jew to invite them into his their house, to where he's staying, is like doing something that just totally goes against every cultural fabric in his body. Peter got up and went to the pagan land. Peter then led other brothers to Joppa too. Man, what a leader, huh? Taking a bunch of Christian followers, believers, Jewish Christians, Jewish believers in the Messiah, he's taking them to a bunch of pagans' house. Crazy. Outrageous obedience. Next, we move to the next main part of the gospel that has destroyed the barrier wall. We're not going to get into this, but I, I kind of just want to take a second and skip ahead, and then I'll come back next week. So look down. Look down in your Bibles over to 34. I want to give once again, and I want to drive you and point you one more time to why Peter did what he did. Why did he go against what his emotions and his feelings said? Why did he go against what was the, the Jewish thing to do? Why did he do it? The answer is, is because he understood who Christ was. He got it. He knew the glory of the gospel. How do we know? Because as soon as he shows up, what does he talk about? The gospel. He says it's all about Christ. I'm here, yep. It's confusing. I don't completely get it. But God is not a respecter of people. I'm here. Let me give you the gospel. And that's what he does. Next week, that's what we're going to look at. But let's read it. In 34, open his mouth, Peter said, I most certainly understand now that God is not one who shows partiality. But in every nation, the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. The word which he sent to some of Israel preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know the things which took place through all Judea starting from Galilee after the baptism from John, which John proclaimed. You know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power and how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. We are witnesses of all the things he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They also put him to death by hanging him on a cross. God raised him up on the third day and granted that he become visible, not to all the people, but to witnesses who were chosen beforehand by God. That is to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. And he ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly to testify that this is the one who has been approved by God as judge of the living and the dead. Of him, 
All the prophets bear witness that through His name, everyone who believes in Him receives forgiveness of sin. Oh, folks, we've said it from this pulpit. We've said it over and over and over and over. We've said it. Why do we do what we do? Because we know Jesus. Why do we do the crazy things we do? Follow Him even when our hearts don't feel like it. Because we know Jesus. Why do we submit to persecution and still follow Him? Because we know Jesus. Why, when people treat us bad, do we turn the other cheek and not revile for revile and insult for insult? Why? Because we know the one who was reviled for us and was insulted for us and died for us. It's not complicated. It's just a right understanding of the gospel. If you know Him, you will follow Him. No matter what He brings into your life. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Look at Him and find your hope. And follow Him. Let's pray. Father, we praise you and thank you for the gospel. We thank you for Christ. We thank you that he died and rose from the dead. We thank you that our sins are paid for, that there's forgiveness in him. We thank you that you love us. We thank you that though we were sinners, you saved us. We thank you that Christ is alive and reigning and ruling and one day he will return. We thank you for these truths. We thank you for loving us. We praise your name. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.